Hi everyone, it's Crypto Dentist here. So we've got a new sponsor, and we are really excited about this one. It's Macrodisiac, the man, the myth, the legend himself, David Bell. David has recently launched his weekly Macrodisiac email, which is essentially a trader's guide to macroeconomics for less than half a cup of coffee a day. If you follow him already on Twitter under the at Macrodisiac underscore handle, don't forget the underscore there, so that's at macrodisiac underscore, then you'll know already the kind of critical analysis that he brings to the table from his trading background. You'll get a weekly email covering all kinds of macroeconomic themes and topics from the likely impact and effects of central bank and government policy statements to David's own views on the markets and trade ideas he's looking at. So if you want to sign up to his newsletter, it's $24.99 a month. That's £24, British pounds and pence, $24.99 a month with 30 days free and he'll soon be accepting Bitcoin. So if you're looking for a unique take on the markets, the global economy and how it all hangs together, then sign up now. The link is in the show notes, so head on over there and you can sign up. And don't forget... We still have our other key sponsor, independent author Chris Hannon, who has penned a book that is being compared to The Hunger Games and Maze Runner, and it's called Orca Rising. That's Orca Rising, which has been nominated for the People's Book Prize. Head over to Amazon now and pick up a copy before Hollywood buys the film rights. You can't really consider yourself to be a crypto whale without having a copy of Orca Rising on your desk, can you? This is Daniel Lacalle, and welcome to Crypto and Grill. Welcome back. Let's crypto and grill. As always, it's Crypto Dentist here, and I'm with Stig of the Pump. Stig, how are you? Good. Very positive. Back up, back on my rooftop penthouse now. Excellent. Not um, that it's a penthouse at all. It's just like a corner office. It's moving up for you. I know you do. You're working very hard. Um, now, I know we always say this every week, but we are super excited for today's guest if not slightly underprepared and undeserving to be talking to such a well-regarded individual who has a tremendous intellect and a brain the size of a planet. Um, throughout the series so far, we've taken you through the fundamentals of Austrian economics. We've discussed Bitcoin, blockchain technology, and where perhaps this all could take us in the future. Most recently, we've looked at some companies that are starting to appear in the Bitcoin and crypto space. And today, we really wanted to go back to the fundamentals, the whole raison d'etre, and take a temperature check on the state of the world economy. So to guide us through this minefield of jargon and intentional complexity created by the uh, powers that be, we're joined by economist and author Daniel Lacaille. Daniel, say hello. Hello. How are you? Thank you very much for having me. No, we're very honored to have you on. Thank you. Great to have you on. 
Um, so it's great to have you here, and there's probably not enough con uh, enough time to go through all of our uh, content um, for um, for today. We probably need about ten episodes. So, but let's keep it to our, our regular one hour slot. Um, would you be so kind to give the guests that uh, don't know you and aren't familiar with your work uh, just a brief introduction to to yourself and your career journey to date? Thank you so much. Yes, my name is Daniel Lacalle, and I'm uh, I'm an author and uh, economist. I've written three books in English. The latest one is called Escape from the Central Bank Trap. Uh, the other ones, uh, Life in the Financial Markets and The Energy World is Flat. Uh, I am a professor in different business schools, and at the same time, I'm also a fund manager, and I'm also the chief economist at uh, at a brokerage uh, and uh, asset management firm. My uh, website, thelacalle.com, uh, and uh, you can follow me on Twitter. I think it's not difficult to find me, so uh, pretty easy to to uh, open the dialogue with me. Excellent. And um, so that's quite an, quite a busy uh, schedule you've got there, quite a lot of uh, plates to be spinning. I'm surprised with all of that stuff that you find so much time to be so prolific on Twitter. I think mm -hmm. there's maybe a tweet coming out every two minutes from you. So uh, you're doing very well or you've got a great team behind you. Um, I think I think it's the latter. Yeah. <laughs> so congratulations to the rest of the team because uh, it is not me all the time. Uh, probably, thankfully, and probably my family and my colleagues at work uh, are very happy about that. It's a, it's, a, it's a team of four people that that uh, put content, put my content on Twitter. And uh, but if there's a response or there's an open dialogue, it's always me. Excellent. So um, before we get into a deeper analysis of uh, the state of the global economy and, and some of those topics that you regularly speak on and that you've written on um, in your in your books, um, would you be able to set the scene for kind of the rest of the episode here um, with maybe a 30 second or so summary of the global economy, some of the key risks that you see and maybe how the next few years might pan out? Um, and we'll dig into those as we go on through the rest of the episode. Yeah. Yes. Uh, if we look at the world economy right now, I think that in general, what we can summarize it is in uh, basically three concepts, low growth, low inflation and low productivity. Um, why is this happening? Because we see massive stimuli, we see enormous levels of government spending, big uh, white elephant projects and a huge uh, intervention from central banks. Well, the reason basically is because there is a misdiagnosis from the central planners about the reasons why these factors are happening, why there's low growth and low inflation. Uh, Demand-side policy defenders tend to always see a problem of demand. So when the when the economy is not growing as much as they think it should, not that it is not growing, is that it's not growing as much as they think it should, or companies, investors are not uh, spending and investing as much as the central planners believe they should, again, not that they're not doing it, um, they tend to believe that it's a problem of demand, that, a, that, that they need to incentivize demand instead of thinking about a problem of supply, a problem of excess supply, overcapacity, perpetuation of low productivity debt. And that is where we are. We are in an environment in which uh, we have entered into such massive stimuli and massive levels of, of uh, uh, monetary policy uh, 
QE, uh, low rates, liquidity injections, TLTROs, you name it. You know, we always use very fancy names for the same thing, which is printing money. We're printing money like there's no tomorrow. And all of that money, instead of going into generating higher inflation, inflation, by the way, exists. It's just not as high as they would like it to be. Um, that inflation is being generated where the money goes, which is in financial assets. You have $12 trillion of negative yielding bonds. You have, uh, I was reading recently that Denmark, for example, is one bit away from having all of its bonds in negative territory. Greece is financing itself at 1.5% uh, at, at a five-year level. So what we're finding ourselves is in, a, in an environment of catch-22. If central banks stop their aggressive monetary policy, the the effects of the bubble that has been created in financial assets would be disastrous in terms of the domino effect into the real economy. And if they continue to do as they are, uh, their aggressive monetary policy, if they continue to implement it, what ends up happening is that what you achieve is not higher growth and higher inflation, but stagnation because you per perpetuate, sorry, overcapacity and you const constantly refinance non-performing loans. Low productivity sectors get the benefit of new money. High productivity sectors get the cost of taxation. Excellent. Um, so um, for some of our uh, more uh, introductory uh, listeners, there's some some really sort of key concepts there that I'd, I'd suggest they dig into. Again, in your books, uh, one of the best ones that, um, and that I've read in a long time is uh, Escape from the Central Bank uh, Trap. Um, how would you just, if we sort of take it back slightly from there, so how would you describe mm. your overview uh, or your philosophy from an economics perspective? Would you put yourself in the Austrian econ economics camp or, or more of a, uh, an overall general economist, but with um, a, a prevalence for or preference for free market trade and let's say fair uh, interventions? Mm -hmm. what, how I'm would you describe the, yourself? Uh, I'm closer to the Austrian economics school. Uh, but from uh, from the perspective of let's say of a more realistic approach, uh, rather than mm, looking at uh, the philosophy and the principles that were implemented by uh, Ludwig von Mises or or by uh, Friedrich von Hayek decades ago, no, it's more more in line with what the current environment the current environment is, and obviously. I try to be. Uh, I try to be as uh, I would say uh, realistic mm, as possible. If you read Escape from the Central Bank Trap, for example, uh, it's not about. It's not just about criticizing what central banks are doing. It is also about uh, looking at feasible solutions. Okay, so let's so let's take a look at sort of where we are um, at the moment. I think one of the key things that. Um, keeps cropping up in the in the press and the media is is global debt um yeah. there's there's a, a sort of split camp here there's a view that uh, from some economists and some uh, some people in the in the finance world that actually it doesn't really matter how much debt a company a, a government has specifically um the u.s debt because actually at any point they can print enough money to pay off um any interest or any mm -hmm. uh, any debts that they owe alan greenspan former chairman of the Federal Reserve said that last year in 2018. Um, 
What are your views uh, regarding uh, the state of global debt and the potential mm. threat that it poses to um, either us um, now over the next sort of 12 to 18 months or future generations? Hmm. It is absolutely false that a government can print all the money that it wants and that it can issue all the debt that it needs uh, and with no consequence. The consequences are very obvious. The consequences are you go from financial crisis to financial crisis, you end up you end up with huge asset bubbles, you low productivity, velocity of money, which is, which is which measures economic activity. All those things worsen. No, at, at the end of the day, it's very simple to understand. When you're issue, when you're issuing currency, and you're increasing money supply, and what you're doing is is a, you're doing a monstrous misallocation of capital into uh, financing the, the you know the, the the mistakes or the or the excesses of the present with resources from the future. So the what, what, by doing that, obviously, what you're generating is a much less productive economy, much less dynamic economy. So the 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 reason why Alan Greenspan said that is because the United States is the world reserve currency. The U.S. dollar is the world reserve currency. It is the world reserve currency, not because monetary policy in the U.S. is very tight and sound money driven. It is the world reserve currency because the mistakes that it makes in terms of monetary policy are much uh, smaller and much well oriented towards a secondary market demand than other fiat currencies that just go crazy money, money supply growth. No. So the reason why you have hyperinflation in Argentina is because the Central Bank of Argentina doesn't pay any attention to uh, whether there is actual real demand for pesos. The Federal Reserve is constantly looking at the real demand of dollars. And obviously, if the demand for dollars exists uh, for China to build its reserves, for commodities, for many other things. It's not just the U.S. economy, no? So the, the reason why Alan Greenspan said that was actually because he believed that demand for dollars would continuously expand. But it's only going to expand as long as the rest of the world con continues to believe it is the world reserve currency. And this is not a game of who wins, it's a game of who loses first. So if everybody follows the same mistaken policies of uh, increasing money supply no matter what, uh, issuing currency, getting into debt, you see what ends up happening is that everybody's got sort of walking uh, hand in hand towards the cliff. And once you're close to the edge, the U.S. takes a step back uh, and the rest fall. Hmm? So the, uh, that's what it keeps, uh, it makes to make it the world reserve currency. That's why, for example, we say that, oh, the U.S. is the biggest money printer in the world. No, it's not. The U.S. money supply growth moves more or less in line with nominal GDP and tends to be slightly tighter than what the real demand is out there. For example, at the peak of QE, of quantitative easing, the Fed was never 100% of uh, the demand uh, of uh, treasuries that were being issued by the government. There was always, there were always some form of secondary market out there. However, 
in the in the case of Japan, in the case of the the eurozone, in the case of uh, of China, the central bank can be two, three, seven times real demand. That creates a much bigger imbalance. No, so no governments cannot issue uh, all the currency that they want. They can only issue as much currency as the rest of the world. And uh, including its domestic economy, actually demands. And the the only reason why the rest of the world demands that currency is because you perceive that it's a better store of value and a better way of doing transactions than any other option. As long as you keep that 100% as your policy, then you can continue to be a world reserve currency. If you forget that the only reason why a dollar is worth something is because the person that I have next to me is accepting its face value as a, something that is going to be tradable for goods and service for and services. If when that when that thin line of confidence breaks, then you create a, a much larger problem. So the mistake that that many of the of the economies globally make is to say, hey, the U.S. is doing it, let's do it as well. But they do, they make the same mistakes from a monetary policy perspective, but they don't have the dynamism, the, dynamism, the level of uh, open market, the level of investment, the level of, um, the level of demand for the currency that the U.S. has. So they forget all the ingredients of being a world reserve asset, and they believe that they can get, out, get away with it. So, so if we were to if we were to talk about the existential threat that this poses on either generations now or generations in the future, what what does some of this actually mean for for Joe or Jane Bloggs, the person who walks around the street in wherever it is in the U.S. or the U.K. Mm. or Europe? What is what what does this actually mean for them? Yeah, it means that ultimately, all the success that we are paying today with future resources. Is going to end is 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 from a net present value is detracting growth, detracting productivity, and detracting uh, improvements in the future. Hmm? We're basically just absorbing the, the the wealth of our kids, not our kids, to be fairly honest, our grandkids uh, today. This is what you're doing. What you're doing basically is, you know, by, by massively entering into debt, that what you're doing is that you are you are financing the excess of the present with the wealth of the future. And the wealth of the future does not even know that it is going to pay for it. No, I have in one of my books, I started with it, uh, dedicating it to my children that inherited uh, uh, $25,000 of, of debt when they were born and they didn't know it. No. Yeah. And, and so we talk about so we talk about QE as a policy. How is how has that affected everything since the financial crisis in 2008? Quanti we need to understand what quantitative easing is. Many, many people say, hey, you know, the U.S. is printing money. Why is that not generating hyperinflation? Quantitative easing is not exactly printing money. It is it basically does exactly what a bank does, no? a commercial bank does. You, you put your deposits in a bank. The bank leverages its balance sheet a number of times and invests that those deposits 
numerous times over into the economy. No? What the central bank does is exactly the same thing. The central bank, therefore, is has absorbed the risk that commercial banks, that the that the that the private sector was not taking in the peak of the financial crisis, is taken by the central bank, and so the the balance sheet of the central bank increases. What it buys, it buys assets. Those assets are usually sovereign bonds, some corporate bonds, sovereign bonds. And at the beginning of quantitative easing, the rationale behind it is there is a mispricing of those assets. This is a very low risk asset, uh, the treasuries, whatever it is. And uh, we are going to increase our balance sheet. We're going to buy an undervalued asset. And when the economy strengthens and things improve, we free up the balance sheet of banks. The, the banks start to lend to the real economy and things start to improve. Then the true value of those assets emerges and the central bank repays its balance sheet with the uh, with the performance of those of those assets that it bought at a very very cheap price. No, so it's almost a lender of last resort. Now what happens is that it does that, and financial assets go up, uh, but money velocity starts to come down because the the economy instead the, the the economy rightly so perceives that there is a discrepancy between the cost of money and the and the amount of money available in the economy and what they see as risk. What every economic agent sees as risk. So QE, what it what QE did is precisely this. You had a, a financial bubble. That financial bubble bursts, brings the financial bubble back back. To uh, to its uh, stronger level, huh? uh, if if there can be any strength in a bubble, and uh, and takes the risk that the private sector does not want to take, but there's a point at which it goes from buying undervalued assets. You could say, for example, that at I don't know four percent yield. Treasuries in the United States were steel, but nobody wanted to buy them because we were scared. So the central bank buys it. Okay, fair enough. But at two percent. At as we are seeing, for example, in the eurozone, where countries like Greece, where countries like Spain are financing themselves at the lowest level in history ever, and the central bank continues to pump uh, liquidity, it becomes a perverse incentive. So, quantitative easing at the start has a logic. It has a logic because it says, "Look, you know, there's been such a such a." Such a collapse in financial assets. Everybody's so scared that we don't understand that there is that things are not that bad, and we need to sort of, you know, help things get a little bit on course. But there is a point at which you go from getting things a little bit on course to just literally making uh, being the enforcer of another bubble. Okay, got it. So. If we, if let's be um, a bit more specific then on, on a couple of institutions, I'd really like to talk um, a bit about the ECB and yeah. the Bank of Japan. Um, yeah. If we start with the ECB, and I'll come, I'll come back to the ECB later because I'd really like to understand a bit more about the euro. But um, so the ECB under Mario Draghi um, uh, has has implemented lots and lots of, of QE and these targeted liquidity arrangements. Um, are they good or are they bad, um, or is it somewhere in between? Um, what's the impact on um, on the sort of European debt? And then are there, are there some more currency-led 
um, level. From a euro perspective, as, as, mm. a, as a currency, does the is the euro heavily impacted by this? Um, and I'm thinking mm. now I'm leading the audience here because I wanted to move on to a conversation around Target 2 and the threat that Germany is facing and all of the news we've had uh, from the Italians uh, recently regarding um, their debts. So if we could start with ECB uh, since sort of 2008 um, and take your your views and perspectives on that and go from there that would be great i think the first mistake that tends to permeate from analysis on the ecb is to believe that the ecb has followed a very restrictive monetary policy for a very long time and that it didn't start to be aggressively expansionary until Mario Draghi mentioned his famous words of we'll do whatever it takes now in 2014. Uh, the ECB has been a massive money printer, massive, massive money printer uh, since the inception of the of the euro as a currency. The balance sheet of the ECB swelled uh, significantly and uh, and has been, and even when we believe that there was a big crisis in the Eurozone in between 2009 to 2012, it was buying, uh, it was buying under Trichet, it was buying uh, sovereign bonds, it was um, undertaken TLTROs, so that's, that's the first thing, is that the ECB has never been uh, sort of hawkish type of, type of a central bank. Now, in, in the period 2011-2013, something new emerges. Now, it's not just a question of whether there are imbalances between the countries of the Eurozone and whether there are differences in the levels of growth and levels of debt, etc. It is the fear of the breakup of the currency. Hmm? There was that actually was not triggered by traders or by or by speculators. It was triggered by politicians that started to think, "Hey, what about exiting the euro in an orderly fashion?" There is no such thing as orderly fashion in exiting the euro. Um, so, uh, so what what the ECB did in 2014 was to basically say, "Look, the euro is under no threat whatsoever." Many think that, many thought that it was either going to be Greece that was going to leave or it was going to be Germany itself. Why would why would Germany continue to pay for the party of the peripheral countries? Um, so what, what the ECB did was to, was to cement the view that the euro was under no threat whatsoever. The second thing that it did was to uh, bring down the spreads of peripheral countries to the minimum level, to the minimum level possible. But at the same time, doing it in a way in which the biggest beneficiaries of money supply growth ended up being, because of the percentage of debt that it buys, is a percentage of uh, relative to how much you own of the capital of the bank. Uh, the biggest beneficiaries ended up being uh, Germany and France. The ECB owns about 25% of German debt. Um, so... The, the, the idea behind the ECB process was, on one side, you need to keep the peripheral countries safe from a financial crisis. On the other side, you need to, you need to let the Germans and the French understand that there is a benefit for them of this, which was not so evident before. No? Uh, so the ECB, first and foremost, defend the euro. Second absolutely no question about it, make government debt cheap at any cost, at the cost of 
banks being obliterated in their uh, inter in their in their intermediation margins and their profits about at the uh, expense of savers at the expense of real salaries no matter what government spending has to be cheaply financed and that is what it has achieved if you look at the reduction in deficits of eurozone countries the vast majority of it between 70 to 75% comes only from paying less interest expenses on their debt because of the ECB policy. So what is the problem? The problem of the ECB policy is that it it is not, on one side it was supposed to be to buy time for governments to undertake um, re structural reforms, and what it ended up being was a perverse incentive to perpetuate structural imbalances. No? And that is what we're seeing right now now with Italy, what we're seeing right now with Spain, with Portugal, etc., countries that have done very, very little, if not, if anything, in terms of structural reforms, but are financing themselves at the lowest levels in history. Think about Italy. Italy is in this tug of war with the European Commission, is apparently going to uh, enter into a clash uh, because of its budget, etc., and it's financing itself at two and a half percent. It's ridiculous. No, it, it even issued a, a mini currency. It's called mini bot. No, uh, by which so what what in what the problem of the ECB is that a policy that was supposed to be extraordinary to help governments implement the structural reforms that were badly needed to deliver growth, better uh, better employment, and better uh, productivity has become a perverse incentive for those governments to maintain their imbalances. Okay, that's great response there. Just on moving on to uh, the other side of the world with the Bank of Japan. Um, one thing that I know you talk about in your book is similar kind of concepts, similar kind of issues. Um, but I think it's it's uh, a chapter in your book that you state that um, that if we look to Japan, it's effectively twenty years ahead of where other economies are or other central banks in terms of their actions is, um, and. I think Abenomics uh, had these three arrows that uh, that were supposed to rejuvenate the Japanese economy. Um, where it is now is uh, not necessarily in a great place, but is um, has already implemented uh, some of the policies that the ECB are now starting starting to talk about, investing it directly in uh, in the stock market um, and transferring the ownership or, or the cost of that onto the the citizens uh, directly themselves. Are you able to just to shed more light on the state of um, state of Japan? and why that approach, if it's adopted, I guess, in, in the Eurozone or anywhere else, um, may present a, a further challenge. Yes. Uh, what Japan, Japan had, as, as you remember, at the end of the 80s, had this massive real estate bubble, huge real estate bubble. And it, at some point, pretty much like what we hear right now from China, uh, everybody believed that the Japanese were going to take over the world. And uh, obviously, it was all predicated on a massive bubble. The bubble bursts, and there is a conscious decision from government, the, the central bank, and the large industrial conglomerates to make the economy suffer the least possible at the expense of growth, at the expense of uh, real salaries, and at the expense of many other uh, of, of savings. No? Um, so by doing that... Mm -hmm, it definitely sort of kept a level of social peace, but at the expense of 
now going into three decades of stagnation. The three decades of stagnation is a lot because what it shows as well is that all of those policies, higher government spending, more stimuli, more monetary stimulus, and this back and back again, what it ends up doing is that you expect to get some growth, the growth doesn't come, debt goes higher, there are 200, I believe 250, 230% debt to GDP. Now, what is the difference between, so so if you are a Keynesian economist or if you're a, a post-Keynesian and you think, hey, debt doesn't matter, so look at Japan. Look at Japan. Japan has more than 200% uh, debt to GDP and it uh, the the treasury uh, the the Japanese 10-year bond is is finance is is, uh, is a, has a, a yield of 0. nothing, no, very very almost almost zero. Well, think about this. A country in which the yield has been so low for so many years, for so many decades and has so much debt spends almost 23% of its budget only on interest expense despite very low cost of debt. That's one of the reasons why debt does matter even at a low cost. The other is that everybody look everybody that looks at Japan as hey, who cares? They have low unemployment. They live well. Debt doesn't matter. Forgets the other side of the balance sheet. We're talking all the time about you know liabilities. We don't talk about the assets. Japan is a massive saver of dollars. Is a massive inflow of dollars coming from its uh, big industrial conglomerates, coming from its its citizens themselves that 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 save a lot of money and they tend to save it in 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 foreign currency, etc. So what we always forget is that Japan is able to sustain this massive almost Ponzi scheme bubble that they have because on the other side they are massive savers. Hmm? Now, that is not the case of the Eurozone, and there is definitely not the case of any of the uh, Latin American or emerging market economies that sort of want to believe in this completely stupid concept of money, modern monetary theory that, you know, debt doesn't matter, the governments can spend whatever they want, and that they basically create savings by creating debt. You don't create savings by creating debt. You can get indebted because there are savings. But as but if but but it's not going to it's not going to happen endlessly. And the the the, the proof is in Japan itself that continues to raise taxes, continues to have a problem of of, of budget financing, and that it's undertaking more and more stimuli with weaker and weaker returns. So uh, that's why it's not a good thing to copy at all. So. so, so. So to pick that up, then we just painted a really, really big picture of a sort of doomsday environment where where everything is uh, financially messed up. Um, and if you were if you were sitting within the Fed or the BOJ or even the IMF, you may go, "Don't worry, guys, we've got this. We've got negative interest rates. We've got helicopter money." Um, can we dig into a bit around what these tools actually are, and will they, are they actually going to help the world economy back into growth? Well. Let's let's start from what those those entities are actually looking for, hmm? because growth is is not necessarily the objective. The objective is that uh, debts are paid. Hmm? 
and that debts are paid in one way or another. How do you pay debts? You pay debt with growth, fair enough, but you pay debt with inflation. You pay debt with um, a little bit of, uh, of uh, savings from the rest of the world. When you don't get the first, you try to get the two others. Hmm? And what the, these entities are thinking of is the following. They understand that debt to GDP globally is very high, 320%. And they say, look, that is true, but for every asset, for every dollar of debt that there is out there, somebody has bought it. Somebody has bought it with saving, with some saving. Mm -hmm. So how do we reduce the debt? And reducing the debt for them has to come from demand side policies. Therefore, it is always at the expense of savers and it's always at the expense of the private sector in order to finance the public sector because the public sector, by definition, to them, has no risk. Hmm? So the problem that they, from that line of thinking is that on one side, even following their principles, debt does not go down the second is that it creates it it creates bubbles mm, that then when they burst create a much larger imbalance that uh, what what happens is that we go from crisis to crisis and we end up being more indebted no mm? so what i you know as a as an economist to a certain extent let, let me be uh, let's not be simplistic what i can agree with is that debt per se hmm, is not the issue. The issue is that the misallocation of capital from the, um, from the productive to the unproductive is so huge that the, that the level of growth that you achieve from a new unit of debt is actually weaker than the previous one and generates diminishing returns. That's what they're not thinking. That is what they are not that, that is what they are stubbornly, and I've, I have good relationship with the IMF, good relationship, and they're stubbornly aware, instead of saying, look, demand-side policies haven't worked, and therefore haven't worked, again, and this is the point, we're not talking doomsday scenario, we're talking that you expect 4% growth, and then it's 3 3% is fine. It's fine for you, it's fine for me, it's fine for any citizen. It's not fine for the government that has spent 10% more in, in uh, Imagine, no? Hmm? So we need to understand that it's not a doomsday scenario. It's, it's a scenario in which the level of growth, the level of inflation and the level of productivity that is achieved in the economy is significantly lower than what the central planners would want it to be to achieve their goals. Hmm? And the other part of the, of the equation is fiscal policy, is that in order to continue to drive what they call demand-side policies, in order to, you know, the next wave of, of government spending to, in uh, quote-unquote, boost growth, what ends up happening is that you constantly misallocate capital from the productive to the unproductive, and you generate overcapacity. That is the issue. So that's why the next move is not going to be a, a crisis. It's likely to be more more akin to stagnation.
if we sort of start to come out of the darkness, I guess, as well, uh, rather than yeah. a, a sort of road to stagnation, what does the return to growth look like? And, and there's two things that I'm thinking of here. Um, there's been um, some stuff in the press recently regarding um, the ECB's recent actions uh, that, that Mario Draghi's announced uh, and a possible return to QE. And uh, President Trump's knee-jerk reaction to that was, yeah. uh, you know, look, these guys are just uh, devaluing their currency and it's it's not on, it's bad for trade, etc., etc. So on one side, I wanted to explore that notion that is that always gets um, press and is always put out by the media that actually devaluing your currency is, is great. Uh, you, know, you devalue your currency and you can then um, boost your exports and that, that makes mm-hmm. you a more competitive nation. Um, and, and coupled with that... Um, how does um, how does sort of the import tariffs play a role there and the U.S. and that's something that the U.S. are exploring at the moment heavily with with China and Mexican products. Um, if you could give a response to those two, that would really help. Mm-hmm. Let's start from from devaluing the currency. If devaluing the currency was a tool for export growth, Argentina, Venezuela, and uh, Zimbabwe would be the kings of exports of the world. It's ridiculous. It is absolutely ludicrous and it has absolutely, there's absolutely no evidence that having a devalued currency is going to strengthen your exports. You have uh, actually the evidence of the contrary. Look at non-Eurozone exports of the EU, European Union countries, uh, since the the ECB started to, non-Eurozone exports, since the uh, ECB started to print money like there's no tomorrow and devaluing the euro. They have... The, the export growth has been very poor and it's actually been weakening recently, no? Uh, so uh, the same the same issue and 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 likewise the on the opposite side i mentioned this to one of the advisors of of president trump look at look at how strong uh, how, what a great improvement you have on the uh, trade balance in the united states with a stronger dollar no hmm? at the end of the day i always say to be, to defenders of current of currency devaluation i say what do you want to work for do you want to work for a weak currency? Do you want to work for a strong currency? It's very simple because your salary is going to pay, be paid in it. No? And the defenders of devaluing currency, I always say the same. You know what? What you should do is that if you defend that devaluing the currency is good for the economy, you should get paid in pesos and you should get paid in bolivares. Hmm? And you should enjoy the ride because devaluing the currency creates much many more problems than the alleged benefits that it gets devaluing the currency is the equivalent of price controls and we all know that price controls that are a disaster mm-hmm. um let's to the so the the next point is is uh you were asking uh, is uh, is tariffs no yeah tariffs are the worst way to combat protectionism. There is a problem of protectionism with China, huge problems, has capital controls, lack of legal security, lack of intellectual property rights, uh, defense, uh, many, many, many things. A huge problem of protectionism in China. But you don't combat protectionism with more protectionism because by implementing tariffs, you don't make the other country be uh, more open. They justify their own actions. See what I mean? So tariffs work as a justification of the lack of open market of the Eurozone and China. Now, the problem, and this is a very difficult one to solve, 
When I speak with people in the uh, U.S. administration, they say, yes, Daniel, we have gone through the uh, the textbook approach, which is let's be more open and they will have and they will get the the benefits of trade and they will understand and then they'll come back to the way in which we do things. However, they have not. Hmm? So then it, there is a problem when when what when it becomes uh, an incentive for protectionist economies to use you as the country you the united states in this case as the country to which you export your excess capacity while you don't implement open measures uh, for your economy it's a very very difficult one i think that what the u.s administration is doing is using tariffs as a threat as a weapon in which they say look you don't change tariffs. If you change, no tariffs. We've seen it with Mexico. They've it didn't even last a week. No. Um, so and and why? Because you know this is a negotiation between the largest customer, the United States, and the biggest suppliers. You want to supply. If I am the biggest customer of a supplier, believe me, that supplier is going to treat me like a king. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to demand discounts. And that's what's happening, is that everybody wants to sell to the United States uh, and, other, and, and reduce its, uh, uh, its own overcapacity problems by exporting to the United States while defending a local, uh, local industries. So imagine, we've seen it in Europe. The Eurozone rejects to have any conversation about uh, the automotive sector and agriculture in trade talks. Why? Because they're the most heavily subsidized sectors. Uh, so we need to find a way, and I think that this process that we're seeing right now will help us uh, achieve some form of improvement in economic uh, trade between countries that have quietly been uh, increasing protectionism. Because protectionism didn't appear with Trump. Protection Protectionism started more or less around 2000, 2001 with, you know, implementing capital controls in China or, or cementing capital controls in China, putting barriers to uh, under the disguise of environmental protection in the, in the European Union, things like this. Many sort of hidden protectionist measures. And, uh, the, and, and we, I think that there needs to be a point in which the economies see the benefits of trade, but they don't use the benefits of trade as a one-way ticket. Uh, this is all. This is leading us really nicely into probably the most important question, which is: um, so, what would you do? And to, to sort of facilitate that question, I'm going to bring it a little bit closer to home um, and paint a scenario for you. So, it's it's late October. It's a No Deal Brexit. Uh, the UK is leaving the EU and on a no deal. And assuming you're appointed the Chancellor of the Exchequer, what economic policies would you implement both in the immediate term and long term? So thinking you have about eight years or two terms in office. Mm -hmm. The first one would be to make the UK the open trade country of the world. So no tariffs for anything. Mm -hmm. That's the first thing that I would do because you would attract 
massive investment and you would immediately any negative of uh, the distortions of uh, and the delays in agreements with the European Union etc would be immediately solved by getting uh, the benefits of the rest of the world second you need to make it a tax haven make it a tax haven for business, make it a tax haven for uh, entrepreneurs, for startups, for technology, so that the imbalances created in other economies, particularly the Eurozone, uh, by maintaining at any cost the, um, the, the, the excesses of government expenditure, you benefit from that, no? So, uh, so very uh, a very uh, aggressive and open taxation and trade system the other the rest would come with it because if you think about all of the benefits that the uk economy has many of them already exist many of them already exist you have uh, legal security which is critical you have a mm, globally mm, accepted financial sector and so you you the, so out of the four i would say legs of the chair the two that you would need to cement would be uh, massive trade benefits relative to the rest of the or, or not competing but the rest of the economies that you deal with the second is taxation taxation would be critical absolutely critical because the the inflow of capital that would come from those two would be so dramatic relative to the unquestionable challenges of um, exiting decades of, of, of agreements with, with other countries, I think that it would definitely um, cushion and offset those, those problems. There is a great book by, uh, uh, by a great friend of mine, Daniel Hannan, um, uh, and a, a European member of parliament, I think it's called "What Next," hmm? and it's and it actually pencils what a No Deal Brexit UK could be in order to thrive and succeed. Uh, but but in my opinion, those two factors would be critical. I'm literally logging into Amazon now to order it. <laughs> um, so to, so to bring this so to bring this full circle, then because um, uh, I'm very conscious that we are slowly running out of time. Um, you just get, you've just painted such a wonderful story around both the economic challenges and pressures that we face, some of, face some of the some of the current policies that are being put in place, and what we could actually do about it in a very specific scenario. So, uh, can we uh, can we just spend a bit of time maybe overlaying uh, Bitcoin? So, what are your views on Bitcoin, and mm -hmm. do you think it could hold a really really important separation between government or state and uh, money in free markets? I think that. There is a, there is an absolutely critical, and essential role that cryptocurrencies have in this monetary world that we talk about, which is to prevent central banks from going all in crazy. Hmm? So the threat of cryptocurrencies is great. You know, and, and the fact that central banks are actually concerned about cryptocurrencies is fantastic, no? Now, so I think that Bitcoin, uh, what Bitcoin suffers from what every startup suffers, which is that it's a startup of a currency. 
It's not yet a means of payment. It's not yet a widely used uh, reserve of value. And therefore, uh, and volatility is, is very high. Uh, but what Bitcoin is doing is that slowly but surely, hmm, no matter what would, you know, the volatility of, of Bitcoin itself is that it, it is there. No? When you think about everybody that is way in advance uh, said that Bitcoin would disappear, we're in 2019, we're going to 2020, and it's there, no? And it continues to be there. So the, the startup process is, is finishing. Now what we need to do is, is to start to see the true reserve of value. Hmm? The true reserve of value can only come from widespread usage. And cryptocurrencies so far have suffered from one big mistake. The big mistake of cryptocurrencies in the past uh, six years has been to be too close to the same financial asset bubble that the, that they are supposed to be a hedge against. See what I mean? That they have benefited. Many of those cryptocurrencies started and rose and benefited precisely from cheap money, aggressive, uh, aggressive exposure to extreme cyclicality and financial asset bubble. So what needs to happen now is that is the decorrelation. I like to see, I would like to start to see the decorrelation. And if you read uh, Hayek's uh, book, or the denationalization of money. What he said, obviously, not he wasn't even fathoming the idea of of the internet and all these things. But he was talking about separating the money creation from state intervention, because the state always has the perverse incentive to print more money and destroy the purchasing power of currency. So this is the critical aspect that needs to be cemented in people's minds: that you're not going to that 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 purchasing power of the currency, be it a cryptocurrency, uh, one or the other, Bitcoin itself, that purchasing power is not going to be uh, demolished by its own, uh, uh, the, the, by the, not just by money supply growth, but by speculation. Speculation is also an important factor. If you have somebody that has 5% of a currency as an asset, as a financial asset and gets rid of it and the financial asset falls 70%, it loses its its uh, its purchasing power op opportunity. So I think that, you know, that is a slow process that we need to start to see. You know, I'm, I'm, I think that it's, uh, it's fascinating and I think that it's very, very important because the next wave of financial repression from central banks can be very aggressive can be truly aggressive and and you have people out there defending this horrific concept of modern modern monetary theory which is literally printing money to pay for uh, for government spending so the only way in which you can really uh, prevent that is by cryptocurrencies being successful at uh, being widely used reserve of value and purchasing power defenders interesting and there's there's a um, I, i'm not sure who coined the phrase but um uh, people have been sort of saying for the last year maybe longer actually that um bitcoin isn't the bubble bitcoin's the pin 
and mm. it'd be interesting i'm interested to find out how this plays out in the next few years if if everything that you've painted continues and the the, the debt continues to rise um and we we continue to be unable to service that um that debt without printing more money or creating um a bigger mm-hmm. problem um then whether bitcoin has actually done it done enough to to establish itself as a safe haven asset and then the likes of um compared to gold and whether yeah. it would be a good hedge against all of these things like you you referenced then i think many cryptocurrencies fail to understand the importance of sound money and where they where they ought to fit in uh bitcoin is one that knows exactly where right. it is and what it stands for as uh, our view on this uh, well i think it you know as long as it as long as the the bitcoin community understands the problem and the only way in which bitcoin can ultimately succeed which is that bitcoin can will only succeed if 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 worldwide we see that it's the best option to shield yourself from disinflation not from hyperinflation we're not going to get hyperinflation from disinflation hmm? big mistake from many people that came to me talking about bitcoin a few years ago was to say that it was that it was a hedge against hyperinflation you cannot create a hedge against something that people don't perceive hmm? therefore to me i think that uh it's interesting this concept that it's not the bubble it's the pin no uh for it to be the pin uh it is starting for example many people say oh bitcoin fell quite a lot recently but remember what it is against it's it fell look at how well it did for nigerian uh citizens or for argentine citizens or for venezuelans for yeah. venezuelans that or, or for for turkish citizens yeah. i remember being in turkey and somebody was telling me oh no no i'm very happy with my bitcoin and i was like hasn't bitcoin fallen a lot or not relative to the turkish lira mm-hmm. <laughs> so um the point that i'm trying to make is that as long as that process hmm, of having one of you know every single let's let's imagine bitcoin as a non-state mm, currency uh, and uh, compared to other uh, state currencies the mistake that all other state currencies have made is to believe that being a little bit like the united states will not be negative and being a lot like the united states will not be negative so as long as bitcoin and bitcoin uh investors understand that the number one and only concept is reserve of value then it might it might succeed but but it's a process i don't know i don't know if it's going to happen i don't know if there will be the if there will be a, a sort of um let's say temptation to go crazy but as you said for it to be the pin it needs to have 100% reserve of value as let's say the the it's it's defining factor when people that when people are worried about their government in Turkey in Argentina in Venezuela in uh, uh in 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 India anywhere in in South Africa when you hear that the financial minister is saying that they're going to print money to make everybody rich that when you, they think of reserve value they don't think of the dollar and they don't think of gold they think of bitcoin 
that that is that is not an easy thing. It needs it needs time. It needs widespread utilization. So that's what we need to continue to monitor and people like yourselves continue to do. No, and for example, I think that what we've recently seen with the Facebook uh, Libra, no, is is can be part of that. Yeah, and it's it's interesting that we haven't sort of um, had enough time to analyse the Facebook Libra. But again, I think uh, my take on on that is that it, to your point earlier, it looks like they're making the same mistake that other uh, cryptocurrencies have made. It's just a yeah. digital payment system on top of um, on top of the current banking infrastructure and central bank policies that that allows effectively a stable coin and a, almost a, a cryptocurrency equivalent of the SDR basket, the special drawing rights of the MF, uh, IMF. Um, to sort of maintain its value and be used as a digital payments network um, all over the globe. But to me, sure. that's replacing Visa, it's replacing MasterCard, it's not challenging central bank authority, it's not challenging the existing banking infrastructure. So um, it is part of the system. It right. is. That it is clearly part of the system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Marvelous. Um, look, this has been uh, fantastic, and we're just about out of time. Um, Two questions I had before we finish, um, just regarding your books. Um, in uh, your book, Escape from the Central Bank Trap, you outline um, actions that individuals can take to avoid uh, some of the uh, negative uh, actions of, uh, of central banks. Uh, would you mind just giving a very brief overview of what those actions are that someone mm-hmm. could take? Yeah. The first is, is to is to avoid believing in hyperinflation as a, as a side effect of central bank policy in the Western world. Mm? So, and because because that can make you enter into big mistakes, like going into very aggressive cyclical assets or uh, uh, thinking that, that uh, you know, that, that there's going to be a, a big uh, problem of scarcity, things like that. No? So it's a, you need to have a combination, in my opinion, of assets that on one side uh, bet on that, a situation in which governments perpetuate overcapacity. So you end up in a funny situation in which, for example, treasuries end up being a better asset than uh, high growth cyclical stocks. No, you need to be on the sort of mid-size of the expensive uh, part of uh, of equities because cheap equi- the, the 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 value stocks continue to uh, erode in value because they become the financers of financial repression and the expensive stocks are too aggressively uh, are too aggressively uh, impacted by that monetary policy so you need to be sort of in the middle, no? And um, you need to have a combination of well-established uh, cryptocurrencies uh, that 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 allow you to precisely uh, monitor that process that we were talking about before. You know, crypto uh, to uh, whether they, that they become the pin. Hmm? But you need to look at cryptocurrencies, in my opinion, the same way as you look at startups in. In the stock market, no? knowing that, as Hayek mentioned in the denationalization of money, the vast majority of the ones that have been launched will disappear. Mm-hmm. And there will be one, maybe two, that will ultimately be, uh, uh, let's say, the, 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 the drivers of, 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 that, of that pin, or at least, I wouldn't say the pin, but I would say the barrier. You know, the, the way that I look at it if in, in an ideal world would be that a denationalized currency that is of widespread use and that is 
widely considered a reserve of value, works as a barrier to stop things like MMT and like uh, massive Argentina-style printing of money. Excellent. Thank you so much, Daniel. And uh, to bring us to our close, it wouldn't be an episode of Crypto and Grill uh, without asking you uh, what your favorite dish to put on the barbecue would be. So let's fast forward to 2022. Escape from the Central Bank Trap has sold over a million copies worldwide. And you're celebrating with all the publishers, the economists, heads of the global central banks. What would you um, put on the barbecue grill to keep them all happy? To, uh, to keep them all happy. And to feed them, yeah. What's your choice? Uh, and we're talking food here, no? Food, we're, absolutely. We're, well, you, you can p- feel free to put central banks themselves on the on the grill. But, um, <laughs> but yes, uh, most people have, in, in the Bitcoin and sort of crypto uh, sort of guest sphere, have gone for some form of steak. But we have had a cake um, and uh, and some prawns on there as well in the past. Central banks are not going to go for salad. Central banks want cake. Hmm? Central banks want, central banks need sugar. (laughs) So I'm going to go for a triple chocolate and vanilla ice cream with, uh, topped with cream and a a cherry and a generous portion of chocolate cake Trump style, because that's what central banks absolutely want. They want sugar. They want uh, they want calories, empty calories. Excellent. Feed that addiction. Um, <laughs> uh, Daniel, this has been fantastic. Um, best of luck uh, with the next uh, 12 months and the rest of your career. And uh, I hope the book continues to sell well. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute joy. Great to talk to you guys and keep the good work. Yeah, it's fantastic. Fantastic podcast, this one. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance.